we continue with our discussion of chapter 11 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, otherwise known as the 1689. And we are continuing the topic of justification. Uh, last week we began uh, considering this great topic. As I said, the topic that really is at the center of the Protestant Reformation that broke out in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe and made its way to England and eventually to, to, uh, to the Americas. Uh, the great doctrine that a man stands before God, righteous in his sight, because God has declared it to be so, because God speaks it into existence, because God is the one who, who makes a declaration that those who are brought to him, those who are called by his Spirit uh, after regeneration, are therefore seen by him as righteous. They're justified before him. This is, a, as I said, a central principle of the Reformation because it stood in such grave contrast to uh, the Roman church of the time, the only church in the West, uh, which was teaching uh, not that men could be justified uh, by faith alone, but rather were justified by a process of infusion where righteousness was granted to them as they accumulated it through the course of the good works and more specifically the sacramentalism that they did in their lives, which, as I pointed out last week, brought no assurance and no hope to them whatsoever because it meant that no matter how much you did, you always questioned whether or not you had done enough and whether you had done it rightly. And these things, of course, now find their way also, unfortunately, into much of the synergistic world of the Protestant side of the house. We call it evangelicalism, I guess, uh, and even in mainline circles. Uh, this synergism between what you do and what God does in the vain hope that it produces some sort of resultant uh, standing before God. But, as I said last week, you, you cannot change what you are by what you do. What you do comes out of what you are, but you can't change who you are by what you do. And that's a fundamental problem to the human race. But God has solved that problem by sending his son, Christ Jesus, into the world and then sending his spirit into the world. The son fully obeying the father in his active obedience in his life and his passive obedience in his death. And those two things imputed by the father through the process of the spirit, bringing the new heart into us whereby we are called to Christ in faith and as we come to Christ, the Lord justifies us before himself. He changes our status. He changes our nature. He changes who we are such that then we can approach him. An unholy people now made holy, able to come into the presence of a holy God. So that is the essence of justification. But there's more to be said about it. So we have a few more paragraphs to go, as you can see. So we, now we get to paragraph number two. Faith... Thus, receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. All right, let's be clear. The confessors here are making sure to express what we would today call sola fide. As we look back upon the Reformation, we see these great solas of the Reformation that broke out. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone is the final authority of all matters of faith and practice. Sola gratia is by grace alone that we are saved. Sola fide is by faith alone that we are saved. Uh, solus Christus, it is faith in Christ alone in which we are saved. And soli deo, glory to the glory of God alone is it all. So this is an expression in this paragraph of sola fide, faith alone. And again, this stands in contrast to the church of the time. It stands in contrast, as I just said a moment ago, to the Catholic Church, which taught and still continues to teach that a man is not justified by faith alone. A man is justified by faith and his obedience to the dictates and dogmas of the church. As I say often in my membership class, that the contrast between the solas of the Reformation and the Roman church is a contrast between sola fide on one side and sola ecclesia on the other side. Or better, solus Christus on one side and sola uh, ecclesia on the other side. Faith in Christ alone over against faith in the church alone. Or more specifically, what the church dogmatically states you must do in order to be righteous with God. That is why, the just, that is why justification by faith alone was the central principle the material principle of the Reformation. The writers here are making it clear. It is faith and faith alone, the only means 
by which we are justified. A man is not justified except on the basis of his trust in the promises of God, as they are seen, expressed, and completed in the work of Christ. So when we talk about faith in Christ, what we're really talking about is faith in what God has promised through Christ as we trust in him, thus his work completes, finishes, and applies what it is that Christ has done for us. But it's exactly the same for us as it was for Abraham. We'll come back to that in a minute. So it is faith and faith alone. It is a man coming to God with nothing in his hands except his trust in what it is that God has said. His belief that what God has said is true and therefore he believes it. He says, I believe this is true. Now, in Reformed circles, we talk about faith having three particular elements. Um, Let's see if I can remember these now in Latin. First, it's, oh, I can't remember the first one. What's the first one? Second one is essentia, and the third one is fiducia. What's the first one? No, no, it's, it's, okay, let me put it in English, all right? The first is faith, of course, requires an understanding. I mean, basically, there's a fact on the table. You need to understand the fact, okay? You have to understand it intellectually. It's a sense of this, I understand this fact, okay? Uh, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's a fact, okay? So I I look at that, and I see that as, as a fact, all right? But then the second element is, not only do I see it as a fact, but I, I embrace that fact as having something to do with me. Okay, so it's not just a fact in the general sense of the term. It's sort of, sort of sitting there like a neutral thing. But it actually means something to me. Okay, oh, so Christ rose from the dead. What does that mean to me? Okay, what impact does that have? I mean, it's very possible to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but it never moved to that second step. I, I, I've used my father as an excellent example. My father believed absolutely that Jesus rose from the dead. He would go to church on Easter Sunday believing that that was true. But it never had any effect upon him. It didn't matter to him. It was just the truth. Faith moves from, I understand it, to, okay, it's personal. But it goes even one step further. It goes to what we call the fiducia, if I'm not mistaken. And the fiducia is it goes to, this is something that must impact how I then choose to go forward with my existence. So if, if Jesus rose from the dead, that's a fact, and it means something to me personally, the question is, what am I going to do about that? Okay, How am I going to deal with that in my own life? What am I going to do? So faith, as far as the biblical writers are concerned, and the confession writers are concerned, is that it must move from that first point of fact to that second point of personal connection to that third point of it does something and means something to my existence. That's faith. This is the fundamental argument of the book of James. Faith must be something concrete. It can't be just something you have in your head. Okay, An Oprah-esque faith is not faith. What do I mean by Oprah-esque? Oh, I'm a woman of faith. So what? That don't mean squat. The question is, is what do you believe and how does it impact your existence? Okay, so faith comes out of us as a concrete understanding of what God has said to be true, what he's revealed, why that means something to me, and then what it is I'm going to do. So the man coming to God by faith is coming with an empty hand because he's saying, I don't have anything to offer God except what I know to be true, I know it's true for me, and I know it's true because I'm going to put my life in it. I don't know it's true because of that, but the point made is, is that that is true, and I'm putting my eternal destiny on the back of that there. To trust in, to trust in Christ alone, and that's the key word there, sola, alone, is to say I'm putting my trust in the finished work of Christ, and nothing else, only that. We talked about this last week. We come before God, what do we have? Zip, except Christ. So what do we do? Right? We point to him, his righteousness, his completed work is all. So the writers in this paragraph want us to make sure we understand 
that there is no other means under heaven by which a man can be justified other than his trust in the finished work of Christ. And that's why I call it the finished work of Christ. Not just the work of Christ. The finished work of Christ. That he completed everything necessary for my righteousness. His active righteousness, his passive righteousness. We talked about that last week. Faith is what is the means by which a man is justified. The the argument of Romans chapter 4 could not be more clear. Abraham was justified by one thing. He trusted God's word. That's it. He said, I don't don't know how you're going to work this out. I don't know what this is going to mean. I don't know how, you know, what I'm, what, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't know what the end result's going to be, but here's what I know. I know what you said to be true. I trust you, and that's what justified him. When he went up on that mountain with the child, God saying to him, kill the child, offer him in sacrifice to me. Abraham's trudging up the hill with his son and his, and his pack of wood on his shoulder and says, okay, that's what you've said. I'm going to trust you. I know you told me this kid was supposed to be the child of a nation coming, you know, a promised child that came when we were old and here he comes. I know that's true, but I haven't got a clue how that's going to work out, but here's what I'm going to trust you. And the writer of Hebrews, by the way, tells us how Abraham was able to trust him. Abraham had come to understand the idea of resurrection. How? Again, God revealed it to him. But the point is, is that he trusted God. And that's Paul's argument in in Romans chapter 4. He uses Abraham as the prime example of a man who was justified by faith. If you were living in the 16th century, the 17th century, and you were a good Catholic Christian, I guess you would call them in that day. Catholic probably wouldn't be the right term, but if you were a good Christian, you would trudge on down to your local church on Sunday and you would stand before the priest and you would take the host and maybe drink the wine, rarely, but you'd take the host and you would say to the priest, I believe that this host is what makes me right before God. There's a, there's, I, I might have told you this before, but if I have, I'm sorry for repeating myself, but as I was growing up as a child, in the Mass, there would be a little point in the Mass where the priest would take his host, which is usually a big one, and he would snap it in half over the top of the chalice, which was filled with wine. And under his breath, he would utter these words. He would say, snap, and the crumbs would fall. And He would say, may the mingling of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ bring eternal life to them who receive it. Those were his words every time. I'm quoting him exactly, okay, because I heard him a thousand times. May the mingling of the body and blood, remember, they think that host turned into the body and the blood, right? May the mingling of the body and blood bring eternal life to those who receive it. So when you walked up and the priest held that host in front of you and said, the body of Christ, you said, amen. Because what you were saying was that eating that host is what would bring me righteousness, eternal life, justification, whatever term you want to. But the writers of this confession are clear. Nope. Your justification before God is entirely on the basis of you trusting his word and his word alone. So any man that comes before God with anything other than a full-orb trust in God's word in Christ is not justified before him. It is by faith and faith alone. It is sola fide, solus Christus. It is faith alone in Christ alone. Okay? So justification is entirely by faith. And it's a faith that receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness. I, we're, 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 I'm standing before God and I'm saying, okay, look, I don't have any righteousness of my own. Okay? I don't have any. I've tried to be righteous, but every time... Every time I take out my righteousness, it just turns into filthy rags and makes it worse. Okay, so I have no righteousness. I can stand before God and claim for anything. So I have no choice but to receive an alien righteousness. I need a righteousness from outside of myself. And, of course, the only place I can find that is in the perfect Son of God, who lives sinlessly in order to create a perfect righteousness. He earned it. 
He stood, he withstood the devil all of his life and came out with a perfect righteousness in that act of obedience and God the Father imputes that righteousness to me. I have nothing to offer, but he gives me that righteousness entirely on the basis of faith. All right? Yet it, that is faith, is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Okay, so what that is saying is, 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 is finishing the idea, finishing the thought. Faith without works is dead. Okay, you'll notice they even have James 2.17, 22, and 26 in the, uh, as, in the footnote. Because if it's true faith, if it's a true trust in God, it then demonstrates itself in the rest of our lives. If it's a true faith, it demonstrates itself in the rest of our lives. It doesn't mean that our good works make us just. It means that flowing out of the justified man, the man who is living by faith, is a life which demonstrates that reality in him. If the man who's been born again by the Spirit of God has been born again by the Spirit of God, he now possesses a nature that is inclined to do what is good, not what is evil. And so it is by definition out of the new heart that comes to us and out of that effectual call that calls us to God and out of that faith that's implanted in that new heart that also flows the life we live. So our faith is not just some theoretical idea. I know for many people it kind of is. Right? I have faith. No, faith is such that when we trust in God, it becomes out of us then a, an evidence that we indeed have been born again by the Spirit of God. I'm trusting in God. Okay, what does that mean to this area of your life and this area of your life and this area of your life? If I'm trusting God, how does that impact this? That's what they're saying. Faith must have some impact on the way our lives flow. Otherwise, as James says, it's a dead faith. It's a faith in nothing. It's a faith that is in something, but it's not a faith in the finished work of Christ. God has purpose. We've talked about this now from the decree chapter, that God is purposed not to get his elect into heaven. God has purposed to get his elect conformed to the image of his Son, to transform them into the holiness of his own son. So this work of the spirit in regeneration is not to create in us some faith that allows us to walk up to God one day and say, okay, I believe that Jesus satisfied what I need for you. And so, okay, God, we've got that settled, right? All right, I'm going to go live my life and I will see you when I die. Is that good? We cool? That's not what it is. Now I realize the... What I just said to you is how many synergists think, right? They walk down, they pray the prayer, they get baptized, right? Then they're gone. But they think they're saved. I got the card, right? They gave me a little card. This was the day, right? I got my little baptismal certificate. And so I know I'm saved. So I know when I die, I'm in. That's not faith. That's not faith. In fact, that would be more faith in the act than it is faith in the finished work of Christ. Because really, again, what did I say last week? How do you ask a synergist? How do you know you're saved? Pull out the card. Well, see, I got a card. No, no. The faith that truly saves is the faith that flows out of that new heart in us. It is a life lived in trusting in him moment by moment by moment, day by day. Uh, example I've used before. You can say that you trust your car, right? You can say, I have faith in my car. It's an 86 Buick with 325,000 miles on it, but you know what? I trust that. How do you know that you trust it? You get in it and you drive it. That's how you know. You can stand outside of it and look at it and go, oh, I trust this car. And somebody walks up to you and goes, well, how, how do I know you trust the car? I just do. No, 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 no. 
demonstrate to me that you trust this car. Get in it and drive it. And don't just drive it from here to, the, to, to Walmart. You know, drive it, you know, to Minneapolis. I dare you. You say you trust the vehicle. Let's see if you really trust it. That's the same in the spiritual world. We say we trust God, but we have to put that faith on the road. We have to actually get up in the morning and say, I'm trusting what God has said in his word, and therefore, when I encounter this or that or this or that, I'm going to, I'm going to make my decisions and say my words and think my thoughts in accordance with my trust in what he says, my trust in his promises, my trust in what all of this means. That's what faith is, genuine faith. It's not a dead faith. It's a good faith. And, and they go so far as to say it's, 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 it's no dead faith, but worketh by love. Okay, worketh by love means this is, the, again, First John, right? God is love, right? Okay, so if God has given to us his own nature in the born-again heart, then what should be flowing out of us is a love. Love for him. Love for his word love for his church and what it does, and love for one another as brothers and sisters of Christ. That's what we should love. It should flow out of that love. A man who says, I'm trusting in Christ for my finished salvation cannot then say, yeah, but you know what? I really hate going to church. I really hate worshiping. I really, I don't read my Bible. That's not faith. That's a dead faith. That's not really faith at all. And by the way, dead faith is an oxymoron. Okay, There's no such thing as dead faith. You either have faith or you don't. So faith is coming out of us in a life that says, I so trust God and his word that he's revealed in his word. I so trust him that I'm going to live in a way that is consistent with what he has revealed. I'm going to love his word. I'm going to love him. I'm going to love his word. I'm going to love his church. I'm going to love the brethren. So faith is real in the sense that it's not just theoretical. You can't just say you have faith. You have to show that you have faith. Again, what you do does not justify you. It's the outflow of your justification, right? It's what comes out of you. So, so, so when you're doing that good work of dropping that tithe check in on Sunday, right? And you're thinking to yourself, see, God's going to be more pleased with me. You've missed the concept of justification by faith alone. You say, rather, Lord, everything belongs to you. I'm giving this to you. I trust you to make sure that I have everything. So here, this is yours. Take it and use it for your glory. That's a very real different thing, isn't it? See how I snuck that in there, get that whole tithe thing in there? Okay. Any questions on that paragraph then? Now, there's a whole chapter in this on faith, so we'll be coming back to that topic again later. Number three, Christ, by his obedience and death, that would be by his obedience in life and his death, his active obedience, his passive obedience, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified. That, my friends is called definite atonement, sometimes mistakenly referred to as unlimited atonement. Now you say, what? Okay, let me explain. You see, our synergist friends insist that Christ died for everybody. All right? And they have to. Okay, they have to. Because they also believe that in order for a man to be saved, he must appropriate what it is that Christ did for him or her to themselves. So they must, they must embrace somehow what it is that Christ did. Okay, you can ask different synergists how they go about that, but that's a different story. Okay, but you'll notice they, they insist that they absolutely hate the doctrine of limited atonement. They, they, they want the doctrine of... Did I say a minute? Yeah. Okay, I got it right a minute. I got it right a minute ago. Okay. They 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 believe in an unlimited atonement because I said earlier unlimited atonement when I said this is explaining the doctrine of unlimited atonement. Nope, this is the doctrine of limited atonement. Okay, I'm sorry, I confused you. Because I'm definitely confused myself. All right. <laughs> the synergist believes in unlimited atonement. Christ went and died for everybody. 
They have to believe that because everybody has the possibility of being saved, therefore Christ must have died for everybody. Okay. The problem with that, of course, is that implies something about the death of Christ. What does it imply? It implies that if Christ died for everybody, and there are some who are not made righteous by what he did, then his work could not really have completed their atonement. You see, the the logic is impeccable here, right? If Christ died for everybody, and there are some who don't receive what he did and wind up in hell, then his work, by definition, was not really complete. Because if it was, then the man who did not believe in Jesus could stand before Christ on the judgment day and says, well, the preacher told me you died for everybody. You died for me, therefore. I mean, I know, I know. I killed six million Jews. But doesn't matter. You have to let me in because Christ died for me. That's illogical and foolish, isn't it? That doesn't make sense. So the synergist goes along with this idea of unlimited atonement. But the confession writers are saying, wait a minute, no, 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 no. If we're going to understand this doctrine of justification correctly, we have to wind up in a place where we realize that what Christ did must have completed the work of justification, the work necessary for justification, for those who are elect. That when Christ went to the cross, he actually accomplished their atonement. When he lived his life sinlessly, he was actually creating a righteousness that could be given to them. And when he went to the cross, he was actually satisfying God's requirements. All of them. Such that they could be applied to the individual. That is simply called as I said, mistakenly called, limited atonement. Listen, the atonement of Christ ain't limited, okay? But it is definite. So the tulip really ought to be tulip, okay? A definite atonement. Christ went to the cross and he absolutely, definitely, and completely satisfied the requirements of all whom God would give his work. Or to say it to us, there's no more you need to do. Don't look at one single thing that you have done and think to yourself, that is going to help me get into heaven. Nope. If we believe what these confession writers are saying, what we're saying is, we are trusting in the finished work of Christ. I want to be able to stand before God, I don't know about you, but I want to be able to stand before God and be able to say, okay, thank you that I don't have to bring anything in here to satisfy you because I got nothing. Thank you that Christ did everything I need. Period. Okay, so this is written against those who would try to argue that, well, it's a cooperative effort. You know, he did his part, you do your part, and then God goes, ta-da! Well, no. The Bible's clear. Christ has completed a salvation. I mean, we make the simple argument that if he didn't, then it's not a salvation, okay? It's not an atonement if he didn't actually finish it. Because guess what? We're right back in 16th century Rome, if we don't have a finished work of Christ. Because that's exactly what Rome teaches. Christ's work is not enough. Christ's work was not finished. You want to know why Jesus is still hanging on the cross in every Catholic church and every Catholic home? Because Christ didn't finish the work. He's still hanging on that cross. It's not done yet. It's being represented every time the priest stands up at the altar and takes that wine and that bread and turns it into his body because it's being represented again. It was never finished. It's never finished. It's never finished. Well, that's true of synergists too. That's true of Baptists. It's never finished. It's never finished. It's never finished. It's never done. Have I done my part? I don't know. I hope so. I mean, the pastor said I did, but, you know, he's been run out of his church, so I don't even know if, 
maybe my salvation isn't effectual anymore. Maybe I got to go back and do it again. Or maybe I need to be one of those weak-willed women that's running down the aisle every week after the preacher preaches to rededicate her life to Jesus. That was mean, but but you get the point, right? Christ has either finished our atonement or he has not. According to this confessors, Christ has completed it. He has discharged the debt of all those that are justified. He has fully discharged it. God holds nothing against you anymore. Nothing. No sin that you committed in the past, no sin you committed this morning, and no sin you're going to commit tomorrow. It's all been nailed to the cross. And it's been completed. Yeah, I know our natural tendency is to want to go, ooh, I did that again. I wonder if, stop that. And did, by the sacrifice of himself in the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due unto them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf. God's justice is satisfied for you on the cross. God's justice as a holy God who cannot allow anything imperfect or unholy to come into his presence, Christ Jesus has utterly satisfied God the Father in that, such that you and I are able to come now into his presence as still imperfect people, but seen by him as perfectly holy and righteous, draped with the blood of Christ. We, we talk about the vicarious substitutionary atonement. And what we mean by that is vicarious means that you participated, but you didn't. You weren't there, but you participated in the sense that you vicariously were standing at a distance. We went to the cross with Christ. We went there. Our sin went with there with him. Christ knew the sin of his people and bore that sin in himself and satisfied every single errant thought, bit of greed, lust, whatever, in himself on that tree that day and satisfied fully God's justice for it. Now, by the way, in case you don't realize it, that particular sentence is written to written specifically against the Roman Catholic teaching of purgatory. Okay? That's what it's written against. It's written against the idea of we need to finish what it is that our righteousness demands because, well, you know, we just didn't quite get around to going to Mass enough when we were alive, and so I guess we're going to have to go to purgatory for a few million years and pray that our relatives will give some money to the church so we can get sprung maybe a few millennia early. But that's preposterous. These writers are saying Christ satisfied God completely. And you don't have to. Isn't that good news? That's the gospel and good news. Hey, that's good news. And the reason it's good news is because we know the opposite. We know that we could never, ever even come close to satisfying the requirements of a just and holy God. But Christ did. And again, he can do so, as we learned in a previous chapter, because he's the perfect mediator standing between God and man, being both fully God and fully man. He could satisfy what God requires and satisfy what man requires in his state as both, the God-man. So these writers are making sure we understand when we come to Christ by faith, we are coming to believe that he did it all. Look, I'm not particularly a fan of this of this hymn, and you know we don't sing it because it's... It sort of has a pejorative sense now, but the lyrics are not wrong. Just as I am, without one plea. Oh, that my God. How do the lyrics go? I've sung it in a very long time, right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. We forget the lyrics, but the lyrics are right. We don't have a plea. We're right. We come before God just as we are. What are we? Dead sinners. But Christ has satisfied fully for us. We have no plea. Our plea is Christ. That's one of the reasons I don't like the hymn, because really our plea, we do have a plea, it's Christ. Okay. But what they're really saying in the lyrics is, I have nothing to appeal to. He does. He satisfied God's justice requirement. Okay. Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, meaning 
given by the Father for the, the sins of the elect, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. That's a long sentence, but it's basically saying this. God has given fully everything that we need, but he's done it out of his own grace. It is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay, so the third of those solos comes in at this point. It's, it's God choosing to do this because he chose to do so. Now, you say, well, why? And the answer is, I don't know. Except that that's what he purposed to do. Okay, I can say with definitiveness from Scripture that God has purposed to save a people. Okay, I, can see, I can see that. The scriptures are obvious with that, right? God has purpose to save a people. There's a people that are going to be saved. In the end, there's going to be a people that belong to Christ. God has chosen that people and chosen the path to get them to himself. That is his grace. Again, I've, I've, I was saying this in our membership class on Sunday, that I believe that the best synonym for grace is a radical choice on the part of God. A choice that he makes, and it's radical because he ought not to do it. What he ought to do is condemn us. What he ought to do is say, you're on your own, pal. Okay, you want to be sinful? I gave you free will, go ahead. But he has chosen instead, against his own justice, to be merciful. To be merciful. To actually give to the creature that he has set aside to himself what they do not deserve. So this justification that comes to us is in no way earned by us. There is nothing good in us that the Father looks at to say, oh, I'm going to justify him. Or, as less so rightly put it last week after the class was over, we are not saved by faith in our faith. Right? It's not our faith that's the object of our faith. No, it's Christ that is the object of our faith. Our faith is outward from us. It's never at us. Well, I believed, therefore God must embrace me. Okay, that's Synergism 101. No, no, we don't put our faith in what we have done. Even our faith isn't enough to save us technically, if you think about it. Because how much faith does it take to warrant God giving something to you? If, if, if God were doing it on the basis of your faith, how much faith would you have to have in order for him to extend his mercy to you? You would have to have an infinite amount of faith which none of us have. Good news is, it's not our faith that determines whether or not we receive this justification. It is his grace that determines we receive this justification. It is his choice to give it to us. And he even goes so far as to give us a new nature in which he puts faith in us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? He gives us the gifts of faith and repentance. Acts 13, 47, right? Or 48. I always remember which... Okay, somewhere in the 40s and 13. He gives us repentance. He gives us faith. It's a part of the new heart that he gives us. And he draws us by the Spirit. So the faith we exercise is not even ours. It's something within us that cries out to God because of the new nature that he has implanted within us. And all of that because of his grace. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus. The three center marks of the Reformation. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, our synergistic friends and the Catholic Church teach you that, well, it's up to you to believe. The choice is yours. And God stands impotent at your choice. So do your best. And we say, along with the Reformers in these confession writers, that's not possible. No, no. There's one reason why any of us have been saved, and that's because God set his heart on us. And, and, and if that doesn't get you to worship, I don't know what will. Christ has accomplished what we need, and God has given it to us. And what he does in that process, which is alluded to in the end of this, is that it shows both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. Your justification before God, as he declares you righteous, shows two things. It shows his justice, 
and it shows his mercy at the same time. Simultaneously in you, by justification, by declaring you right in, the, in his sight, he demonstrates, I have satisfied fully all of my requirements in regards to the law over this one. I have declared that the sinner is no longer guilty of any of these sins because I've taken the righteousness of Christ and given it to him. So it satisfies his justice. God is able to be just and the justifier. So God is still able to be just. He's able to say, I didn't just wink at your sin, okay? I didn't just sweep it under the rug. I just didn't, you know, ignore it. No, no, no. I looked it square in the eye. I looked your sin square in the eye. He looked my sin square in the eye. He saw who I really am. Guilty, sinful, rebellious. He knows that. He hasn't forgotten it, by the way. But he looks at me and he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the righteousness of Christ upon that man. And now I'm going to see him fully righteous. And I'm going to say, that man is now just in my sight. Down goes the gavel. The sentence is commuted. No more guilt. The man is righteous. But that is all also demonstrating his mercy. It's also demonstrating the fact that he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. When we step up to the bar, he doesn't have to look at us and go, I'm going to be merciful. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to be merciful to a soul. But he wanted to be. He desired to be merciful. As part of his decree, he wanted to show his mercy. And so he uses the justification of dead sinners to show both. The character of God is fully on display in all this. And as I preach from Ephesians 3, I think there's a heavenly audience watching this and going, ooh, look at that. Wow, look at God do that. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Look at him. Look what he did to John. Whew. That's amazing. Right? Yeah. Okay, so Christ has satisfied fully what God requires. That is a beautiful thing. That's, that's, that was worth the price of admission right there, wasn't it? Okay, number four. I think we can finish this in ten minutes. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did, in the fullness of time, die for their sins, and rise again for their justification. All right, so the writers here are, are, are making it clear of something that they're going to repeat for some strange reason in paragraph 6. They'll go down to paragraph 6. The justification of believers under the Old Testament was in all respects one and the same as the justification of believers under the New Testament. All right, so it's dealing with the question. If we, in the, in, in the, in the church age are saved, or justified, I should say, by faith in Christ, what about men who had never heard of Christ? The answer is that this doctrine of justification actually precedes even human existence. But we are justified in time and space when we put our faith in Christ. We are not born into this world justified, even if we're part of the elect. We are justified when the Spirit of God comes and does a work in us such that he draws us to God. From our perspective, within time and space, the work of Christ is applied to us by the Father, by his grace, in justification, when the Spirit calls us to the Father, okay? Yet, at the same time, we can also say that justification was intended by the Father from eternity past such that, because he lives outside of time, that all men are justified before him by the work of Christ, even outside of the framework of time. Now, I realize that's difficult for us to get our minds around, but look at it like this. Imagine you live... See if you can imagine this, okay? Everything that's happening in the world is happening right before you right now. Everything that's ever happened is happening before you right this very moment, right? That's God. 
There's no time in the mind of God, right? 2,000 years ago and 2,000 years from now are occurring directly in front of us in the mind of God. Now, you don't get that because we're all time-based creatures, right? We, don't, we can't imagine that concept. But God does because he lives in the world outside of time. He is not bound by the constraints of time and space. So he decrees in that framework of eternity. And because he has decreed within the framework of eternity... When he writes a man's name in the Lamb's Book of Life in eternity, and when the Son agrees to die for that man in eternity, the man is, by definition, justified. God has declared it to be so. But from our perspective, it's occurring within time and space, meaning it must then occur in a specific time. So, no man is born justified. We can't say, well, just, you know, you don't need to worry about trusting in God at some particular moment or responding to the gospel. Just, just know you're elect and you're going to heaven. No, that's not how it works. We must still respond to the gospel. The effectual call must still occur in time and space. The regenerate heart must come to us in time and space. We must, we must empty our hands and come to the Father and express our belief in these things. These things happen in time. So what these writers are dismissing is this idea of some sort of eternal justification theory. I've heard a few reform people take up this position and say, well, it doesn't really matter when you were saved in this life because God decreed you to be justified in eternity past. Well, that's true, but God has purposed the means of that to be within the framework of time. And he has purpose for the means of men being justified for them to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. He has not said, well, it doesn't matter if they hear the gospel, they'll be justified. No, he has purposed not only the ends, which is their justification and glorification, but the means that they get there. Okay, does that make sense? You got that? Yes, it is true that in the mind of God, those he was going to justify, he justified in the sense, in the same way that the Bible speaks of Christ being crucified even before the foundations of the world. Was he crucified before the foundation of the world? No, he was crucified in time and space in this world. But from God's perspective, how did he see it? As happening right now in this moment of his eternal mind. So from God's perspective, Christ died because God had decreed it, and therefore it was going to happen, and therefore men were going to be justified, and men were going to be glorified. In fact, Paul even uses the word glorification in Romans 8 in the past tense, because he gets caught up in this thinking. But we live in a physical and real world. We are bound by the laws of time and space. And so therefore, for us, it occurs in time. So Abraham is justified by his trust in God, which would be completed for him in a certain time. In his case, 2,000 years in the future. For us, our justification occurs in Christ, but for us, it's 2,000 years in the past. But from God's perspective, Abraham and us are both justified in eternity. You got it? That makes sense? Now, I know, you can't figure out God's side of the equation, but you can't understand it. I mean, you can't understand in the sense, okay, I get it. Yeah, there was an eternal decree of God in which he sent his son, who agreed to come, elect, elect the people, sent his son, justified those people, and then glorified those people. Okay, outside of the world of time and space, we can get that. But then we have to remember, wait a minute, we live here. So we need to be careful that we don't take eternal concepts and stick them into temporal things. Okay, we've got to be careful with that. Don't take eternal things and put them in the temporal. God is, yes, God has decreed, but there still means that these things occur in time and space. And so when Christ did in the fullness of time die for the sins and rise for the justification, okay, the last sentence then says, nevertheless, they are not justified personally, see the word? Personally, until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. Okay, none of your children have been born justified. Even though your children may be elect. And from God's perspective, they are. All right, let's put that in 
scare quotes because R is a time-based time, right? But they are. If God has, in fact, elect your children to be saved, and he has, in fact, sent his son for them, they will come to faith when God puts the right time for that to be, as he determines that to be. So, we're not born in this world justified. Okay? Let's make that clear. That's, I think that's what they're tr- which they repeat in paragraph 6. Okay, the justification of believers in the Old Testament is the same as the justification of believers in the New Testament in terms of the time. Now, there's another element of that that we'll get to, uh, Lord willing, next week. But, but, um, but understand that these writers are trying to work against a prominent um, position that was taken in terms of justification that, well, it really doesn't matter what happens to us in this life because God justifies his own in eternity. And the confession writers are making clear, nope, that's not the case. We believe there's a time-based element to this because we live in a time-based world. It, sometimes it's called hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism is the belief that, well, God just knows who his elect are, so we don't really have to do anything. We don't have to preach the gospel to them. We don't have to seek them out and, and call them to repentance. And No, we just have to just, God's got it. It's taken care of. That is a form of hyper-Calvinism as we talked here. That, well, hey, God is, he knows who his own are. They're born into the world justified and whatever. It doesn't really matter what happens to them in their lives. That's not biblical. Okay? Any questions? Right. It also has a tendency to make us think less of our responsibilities in terms of faith. If faith is a living out of our trust in Christ, if we're not really exercising true faith and believing that we have been justified, all of that's washed away as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Right. I knew you. Right. Right. Yes. There you go. Correct. Yes. It's all of God. Therefore, it can't be something in us. Again, it says earlier in the confession, right? Even in this section. It's not about us. So it's not as though something happens to us, quote-unquote. And that's hard for us to get our minds around, though. Synergism is so prevalent that we have a hard time getting past it. Yeah, yeah. But excellent point. Okay. Uh, we're out of time, but thank you for coming out tonight and uh, considering this topic again, because this is serious stuff, but really important to the true gospel of Jesus Christ.